what Top Chef does to you is it builds a brand for you, but it tells your story. You know, when you're working in this Michelin restaurants, you're working with a brigade, you're cooking, let's say, you know, at that time for me, it was like Daniel Bolu's cuisine or Daniel Hu's cuisine. I wasn't cooking my cuisine. I was just perfecting all these techniques through someone else's vision, where now on Top Chef, they give you the tools to say, who are you? What is your story? What have you learned, but what are you going to apply to tell everybody who you are? So given that confidence, it's a tool that I've come to realize later on in life, but it's helped me figure out my cuisine, my voice. This is who Byron is. Take it or leave it. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 97 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. If you watch Top Chef season 18, you know the guest I have on the show today. His name is Byron Gomez, who acquired his culinary skills working with people like Daniel Bouloud at several of his restaurants in Manhattan, Chef Ronnie Borg at Atera, and Chef Daniel Hume at Eleven Medicine Park. Originally from Costa Rica, Chef Byron Gomez is a self-taught chef who spent his Sundays reading cookbooks at the Barn & Noble stores after spending his time at Union Square Market in Manhattan. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with American chef, pastry chefs, and mixologists. Please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to the newsletter at flavorsunknown.com. In this episode, Chef Byron Gomez talks about his difficult childhood in Costa Rica, the differences in leadership between Chef Daniel Bouloud, Chef Ronnie Emborg, and Chef Daniel Um, his sources of inspiration, his time in Aspen, and his next project in Boulder, Colorado. Hi, Chef. How are you? I am doing great. Super excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm just curious, what was your motivation to, to participate to Top Chef? For me, it was, it was like a series of things, but I guess more presently, it was the fact that as many people want to delete it from their memories, you know, when we filmed season 18, it was during a pandemic time. And the casting and everything happens kind of like almost eight months prior to that. When, when I first decided to go on the show, I got I, someone reached out. And, and, and honestly, this was a time of my life that I, I said to myself, well, I'm not doing anything right now. The, the restaurant is shut down. We don't know what's this pandemic thing. We don't know what's this whole COVID situation because it was in a very early stage with you know the whole world pretty much shutting down. 
And I told to myself, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not really doing anything. Let me give it a shot. Let, let me see what this is about. Throughout my career, a lot of my peers and friends, they were always like, you should always do television. You know, you, you have the smile, you have the energy, you know, you have the talent. And I always thought to myself, I was like, eh, that, that feels like a little bit more of a sellout. I, I was working at that time in like Michelin world and, 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 and it was like about Michelin stars and, 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 you know, working under someone else's umbrella that I guess all of that just kind of went out the window. And I was like, you know what, let, let, let me give it a shot. Let me see what this whole top chef reality TV competition was about. Little did I know it was going to be life changing pretty much. Okay. So how was the experience? Well, it was the hardest thing I've done in my life. It was like surprisingly challenging in the sense that, you know, I, I've looked at this cooking television shows before and it is one thing to sit on your couch while mm -hmm. you're having some ice cream or some takeout <laughs> and for you to yell out at the TV and be like, oh, I should have done this or I would have done that. This is totally different. Once you're in it, uh, especially something like Top Chef, is everything is very real. Nothing is scripted. You know, when we, we talk about behind the scenes, yes, it's like very long days. And the only thing that's kind of staged maybe might be like the entrance that you do it like twice. You know, you do the entrance once and then they stop. You do it again. But the time is real. When Pama says it's time to go, that is real. The budget. So it was a really like, real awakening when I started filming Top Chef uh, of how real everything is. And time is your worst enemy. That's one of the biggest things because, you know, between a quick fire when they're like, okay, you have 30 minutes, you come to realize real quick how to strategize. Do I go get pots and pans first or do I go to the pantry and get ingredients? Which ones do I do first? Because I'm going to run out of one either case. You know, so it was a it was a reality check of what time management and and and, and psychologically speaking, being there for I, when I was there, I was there from start to finish, pretty much. They called me back from the finale, so they kept me around. So it wasn't like you know, like I got eliminated first and then that was it. Like you go home, like it's like this whole behind the scenes thing that you're still very much in the competition. In a competition, so you're talking about the the pressure of the of the, I mean the time pressure and the you know the organizations and the logistics and so on. But I mean, as you mentioned, and we'll go back to that experience after. But you work in like Michelin stars, you know, in in New York. There's a lot of pressure as well when it comes to the service. And so, how how this experience of time pressure is different with a cooking show compared to like a you know a Michelin star restaurant. When I was working in Michelin World and, you know, I did a one star, two star, three star. We even got to number one in the world when I was working at Living Madison Park. Everything had to be like, like perfect. But let's say something messed up along the day during a Michelin, you know, like in a Michelin restaurant. You had a team of people who will back you up and try to get you there. Because at the end of the day, it's the reputation of the restaurant. So you have that teamwork. Top Chef, it's you're just your own. <laughs> you're yeah, your yeah. own. So if you're spending, if the budget is $300 and you're spending $150 on, on, on protein and 
you forget about that protein and you overcook it, there's no coming back from that. There's not a sous chef that will save you. There's not like a chef de cuisine that might be like, hey, what time on this? You have to manage all of that. And it's not like you could go back to the walk-in and let's say get more protein. No, you already bought this the day before. So you already, you know, so there's that pressure. There's that pressure of obviously the competition in the Michelin world and Top Chef is almost similar, but you're not going to ask somebody, hey, can you help me with this? Or what is this recipe? Or have you done this before? You know, they're going to look at you and be like, ah, you know, we're competing here, buddy. Uh, I'm not going to give you my answer, stuff of thing. That reality, and and I, I guess what what people don't realize, and what's not really told, is that when you walk in there, they take away your cell phone, they take away your laptop, they take away your wallet, they take away anything that has to do with any connection to the outside world. So imagine for how long for the whole from, session from the time that you walk in to the time that you leave. Oh, wow. If you're there for two months, like I was, I spoke to my family maybe once a week in the span of like three to five minute call once a week, if that. So you, you, you're, you're looking at maybe like an hour total of talking to your family in two months. You don't receive any news from the outside world. You don't even know what day it is. They assign you this like production moms who take care of you, who feed you, who, who do an amazing job. But when you get out, it's like almost you're getting out of jail. You're like, what is this society thing like? You know, <laughs> and like psychologically that breaks you down. Yeah, yeah on top you're disconnected. Of like, eh? You know, all the challenges you don't know until they tell you go what it is. So you're looking through your library of memory of recipes. It's not like you have recipes written down. I'm like, oh, I'm going to flip through a book and pinpoint that and let me make this. It doesn't work like that. Everything's on the fly. Oh, wow. wow. And then you cannot search anything online because you nothing. don't have access. To it. Nothing. So nothing. You have no okay. access to wow. anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was the biggest lesson, lesson that you have learned? Uh, confidence. To the show. confidence. I thought, you know, working in a Michelin world and, and, and being a sous chef there and all this stuff, I thought it, you know, like you were like a badass of a cook, but this uh-huh. is different because this doesn't only involve cooking. What Top Chef does to you is it, it, it builds a brand for you if you want to take on that, but it tells your story. You know, when you're working in this Michelin restaurants, you're working with a brigade in a kitchen full of staff that's about 40 people, 50 people just in the kitchen. And you're cooking, let's say, you know, at that time for me, it was like Daniel Bolu's cuisine or Daniel Hoon's cuisine. I wasn't cooking my cuisine. I was just perfecting all these techniques through someone else's vision, where now on Top Chef, they give you the tools to say, who are you? What is your story? What is your roots? What have you learned, but what are you going to apply to tell everybody who you are? So given that confidence, it's a tool that I've come to realize later on in life, but it's helped me figure out my cuisine, my voice, who I am, you know, be brave enough to be like, well, this is who Byron is. Take it or leave it pretty much. And did you have a, a favorite challenge during the show? The Russian Wars was my favorite challenge for sure. I mean... Which, which um, one? Sorry. Which one? Restaurant Wars. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, thus far, I have not seen season 18. I think this is premiering sometime soon. But Tom Kalikyu went on record saying that this was the best Russian Wars in 18 seasons of Top Chef. So Russian Wars was really, really cool. The, the Pan-African Challenge. I mean, on, on, on the interviews, they cut it out. But that was my most emotional interview just because I was a kid who came to the U.S. as an immigrant, and but I wasn't American enough. But I am from America because I'm from Latin America, but I'm not Costa Rican enough because I wasn't raised in Costa Rica. So I always struggle with identity. Where do I fit? In what box do I fit? And looking at this Pan-African challenge, how... You know, we have so much influence from Africa that came to the Americas and this kind of spread out through all out, you know, America. You find your roots and how these people, although, you know, some of them were slaved, a lot of them were like language deprived, culturally deprived because of whatever new situation here in America. Deep down inside of them, they try to many generations how not to change their DNA, their roots who they really are, their identity. And that was through food. And I found a lot of that connection with my personal story and how I grew up eating. And it was an eye-opening experience because I was like, wow, I didn't realize this was like Pan-African. And actually I ate it growing up in Costa Rica, but the roots are actually from Africa. So that was a really, really awesome challenge to be able to hide. Okay. That's interesting already, yeah. So talking about your your background, you know, originally from Costa Rica, which is a beautiful country, you had the chance to to go there, you know, obviously as a tourist, um, but, you know, I had a great time. You said you were n- not raised there, but you, you were there until you were, what, eight, ten years old? or Yes, my parents migrated to the United States in 19... 19- I migrated with my parents, sorry, in 1997. I was eight years old. And um, came to a brand new country, brand new everything. And uh, little did I know how far I was going to get, but how important it is to go back to who you are. Sure. And do you still have a, a remember of some of your like childhood in Costa Rica? Like, do you have a smell, for instance, that reminds you of your childhood? It's funny because um, I'm actually in the process of writing my book. I'm writing a book. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So I'm like already like a year in, and it has been a it has been a very therapeutic time of my life to go back and to to search in the mind how powerful the mind is that if you actually take the time and use it and search for it and make a purpose out of it, you will remember things. So it's funny that you mentioned because there were times that I remember smells. I will remember my, my grandma and my aunt when they, we used to get together on Sundays. I remember the crunch of having a bunch of cilantro and they will cut it with a knife that wasn't that sharp. It was more dull. So it will have that crunch. It's hard to explain until you hear that crunch of the, of the cilantro stems. And then right away you smell fresh herbs, you smell fresh cilantro and they will mix that with onions. Again, having a different crunch, but it's still a sound that you remember from when I was like six or seven years old. And then the squeezing of lime juice and the oils that will like get released in the air. If you were around that, 
you know, so it's funny because I still remember those, those things. If I really recall, I still remember those sounds, those smells and, 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 and th- that environment in which it built a memory for the rest of my life. I mean, smell and taste, you know, part of the senses are powerful tool, you know, for memory. So yeah, it really is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. So congratulations for writing the, the book. Do you Thank have an you. idea when, you. when it, it's a long process. Huh? Yes. It really is. It really is. Uh, me and my writer, God bless him. He has been like a yo-yo with me going back <laughs> and forth. And yeah. I'm like, next day, I'm like, I actually thought of this. Let's write it down. So it's, it's a process right now. Right now, you know, we're kind of laying the foundation and, and whatnot. And, and hopefully we're shooting for maybe a year to a year and a half to have okay. something yeah. to show for. Very good. Okay. So exciting to see that in a... In a year and a half from now. Thank you. That's cool. Yeah. So, so you said so you arrived to the U.S. So you were in you were uh, already in Long Island at that time when you arrived, or yeah, my parents they settled in uh, Central Islip. It's about uh, an hour to an hour and ten minutes from Manhattan on off of the uh, Long Island Expressway. Okay. So, how did you get into cooking from Long Island to? Those Michelin star, you know, in New York. So what's what? Tell me the story a little bit here, because that's uh, that's a a great story, I'm sure. Yeah. Very early in my childhood, like I said, I remember those Sundays getting together with family and 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 the guys will watch like the local soccer league. You know, they'll be in the living room watching, you know, the best two teams of the classics of Costa Rica soccer league and whatnot. The kids will be on out in the backyard playing all my cousins and then, like, my aunts and my grandma will be in the kitchen, you know, kind of cooking. So those were the early memories of my life of what cooking was. There was a very dark period of my life, which I talk about in the book, but I'm going to mention it here real quick, where I went through uh, domestic violence, alcoholism. Oh. I remember we would run away, like, at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. My mom would wake us up and gather whatever we could gather. And she would stuff our clothing in the the pillowcase that we were sleeping that night. And I remember running through coffee fields in the middle of the dark through like creeks and then end up waking up in some stranger's house. And having that fear of all that trauma, what was going on the night before and waking up in a very strange place. The only thing that made me feel comfort and soothed me was hearing my mom's voice somewhere in a room inside that house, inside this stranger's house. And most likely that room was the kitchen. So I would like wake up and, 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 walk around trying to hear her voice smelling this like breakfast smells of my mom's cooking and then my mom will be there so throughout that trauma those early memories of what family was and getting together and then tragic and then finding my mother in in a, in a kitchen at a stranger's home those were the first memories of me finding comfort in the kitchen never did I did little did I know that I wanted to become a chef and do everything that I did was it in the uh, San Jose area that you guys? It was in San Jose, correct. Yeah. Later on, my mom got fed up with the abuse and everything. She decided to come to the U.S. and then left me, my two sisters, and my dad back in Costa Rica. She came here to like look for a better life and 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 to see, you know, if my dad got his act together. My dad, you know, by the grace of God, cleaned his act, 
stopped alcoholism, wow, changed his life, came to look for my mom. And then they both worked together for like eight months, very hard here. They, they had factory jobs. They would work 16 hours a day with like an hour break in between. And six months later after that, me and my three, my two sisters came to the U.S. So we were building this family that was broken through life experiences and whatnot. And the church group was where my parents found comfort, found guidance. And I remember my parents would invite members of the church to come and eat at home. My parents were great cooks. So I got very lucky growing up, you know, uh, very good home cooks, not like nothing gourmet or fancy, like just very, very home, uh, home cooks. And I got stripped away from having those Sunday get togethers with my cousins and my aunts and my uncles. Now I found this new hospitality group that my parents would bring home once a week. And then my parents would cook for the church and things like that. So to me, that's where I found comfort. That's where I found an identity in cooking. Little did I know, my parents were pretty much stealing what in me, what hospitality in a restaurant is like, you know? So I grew up around good food and whatnot. So that became normal to me. And then I was 15 years old and a family member offered me a summer job at a very famous restaurant called Burger King. And that's when I started figuring out that I wanted to do what I wanted to do. That's funny. So, <laughs> I did that for the summer. I think you know that restaurant, right? Maybe. You know. Yeah, I think so. A little bit. <laughs> it's, it's been around for a while. So yeah. that's where my interest of cooking started. You know, After that, I worked at a restaurant called TGI Fridays. I'm still there. Okay. Pretty sure there's still a few of those around. Then from that, I went on to the Sheraton Hotel. And this is all during high school. This is mm-hmm. all during high school. I went to the Sheraton Hotel and I was, what was it, 19 years old, graduated high school, 19 years old, and decided to move to New York City with $800 in my pocket and to look for an apartment out in the Bronx because I wanted to work in New York City. I was so close to the Mecca of culinary that I was like, I'll be a fool if I don't take this gamble. There, I set my eyes on a few mom and pop restaurants, nothing Michelin, nothing big time, just to get my footing in the door, just to see what it was like. Culture was like traveling, commuting, living in the city, having that life. After about two years after that, I decided to work for Daniel Bolu. And I opened one of his restaurants. And in that corner, there were three restaurants. And on my days off, I would go and stage, meaning like I would go work for free at his other restaurants because there were different concepts. And that's how I got involved with the Michelin world, wow. with the celebrity chefs, with Daniel Bolu. I went on to working for Daniel Bolu for about five years. I worked six of the seven restaurants he had in New York back in the day. Made my way around the whole company, you know, networking, working hard. And then I decided to scratch everything, start from zero and leave classical French cuisine, which was my culinary school because I never went to culinary school. I went to school of hard knocks. I always tell people. <laughs> and um, I began at a two-star Michelin called Terra. Okay. Oh, Ronnie Amberg. It's uh, Ronnie Amberg. It's uh, 
Scandinavian cuisine. So at that time, in 2013, 14, 15, 16, there was this whole movement in the world of this restaurant called Noma. Noma was using yep. fermentation. This chef called Rene Rezepi. Rezepi was, in Denmark. Yeah. yeah, was like changing the whole world. Before that, the only person that was changing the gastronomic way of seeing things was El Bulli. Back mm-hmm. with like Ferran Adria in the nineties, you know, early 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 two thousands. Now comes this new revolution of like what is in your backyard, mushrooms, foraging, preserving, and the only restaurant that was doing that at that caliber was Atera. I would say in the U.S., in no US, one else yeah. really had like a two star Michelin that kind of service, and and Ronnie Ember just came from Denmark just took over at Terra. So I decided to jump on that. I decided to jump on that. Totally different service, totally different food. This was an open kitchen where you were cooking and you're serving the guest and you're clearing their plate and you're doing the pairings. So it was a more composed, you know, service. It wasn't like French kitchen where it's like yelling and loud and just push out the food, allez, you know, type of thing. This was more like, okay, you have to be clean. You know, you could be in the shits, but you have to maintain your composure because you're putting up a show. You know, it is your image and whatnot. And the food was more minimalistic. The food was more... It wasn't so many garnishes and sauces. It was very simplistic, but it tasted really good. And and to my palate, it was just something totally different. You know, we didn't have to use cream and butter and all these rich ingredients to make it taste amazing. It was like very fresh, very clean, very minimalistic. So I was learning something new, not only on service, but my palate and my repertoire and like all this other stuff that helped me on. And after about a year, year and a half of that, I decided to work at 11 Madison Park. Just, I told myself one day, I'm like, I did a one star. I did a two star. Let me just do the whole round. You know, might as well finish the whole thing. At that time, 11 Madison Park, we know they were known for their service. It was like American, French cuisine. So it was a little bit something different. And when I started... Little did I know that we got recognized as the number one restaurant in the world in 2017. So what a time to be alive. What a time to be in New York City. What a time to, you know, work at such a place. And yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience, actually. So how was the different of, difference of leadership between uh, Chef Daniel Bouloud, Chef Daniel uh, Home, and then uh, Chef Ronnie Amberg. So Daniel Bouloud, to this day, I still call him Papa. He has that father persona about him. I mean, he is like what you would truly call an OG, original gangster. You know, he <laughs> came and this is the guy that you would think about when you're thinking about the Godfather. This is who Daniel Bouloud is. The French uh, Godfather. <laughs> exactly. Yes. He is the Don Corleone, just like not getting involved. But if he speaks, things get done. So uh, that kind of respect obviously comes with, you know, a lot of hard work and, and a lot of consistency. So Danny Bulu was like the dad. 
He was my culinary school. He was the guy that I could talk to about, you know, regular life stuff. And he will like advise me. Ronnie Amberg was very European, long hours, quiet kitchen, concentrated, things like that. That was like the culture. And then I go on to 11 Madison Park. And 11 Madison Park, to me, Daniel Hume was the real celebrity chef type of thing. Daniel Hume will show up every now and then and just kind of like not even kind of cook, just do a little bit of orderings and things like that. And then he will leave for the day, you know, or if a celebrity came in, he would be the one that would be like, okay, um, I'm going to show up just to be here in the kitchen. But after that person left and the kitchen tour was over, he will go home. So I guess Daniel who figured out a formula where he doesn't have to be there all the time for his restaurant to still run very well. And that came from him investing a lot of his time at a younger age to build that culture, to pass it on to other leaders. So that actually taught me, you know, many people must be listening to this and be like, oh, this guy is like lazy. He doesn't do anything. No, it actually is very impressive. The fact that if you're a good leader, you don't have to be there all the time because things will still get done. So that's what taught me. He taught me how to be accountable, how to be responsible, you know, how, how to take action uh, of my own stuff and actually execute it and not be micromanaged. So that's how I saw it. You know, other people may see it a different way. This is how I saw it. And I'm like, you know what? I want to be that one guy because eventually I may want to have a family or want to have time off that I don't want to be in the restaurant. I don't want to be a slave to the restaurant all the time. If I could train somebody underneath me to do the same job that I do or even better, then that's what a leader is. It inspires others behind you. So you said that you were self-taught and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Daniel um, Bouloud was your culinary school. So you didn't go to actually a culinary school. Did you ever miss it like during your career so far? Not so being at the culinary school? I mean, I'm all for education. I think education is is great. Mm -hmm. What I don't agree on nowadays is that a lot of these culinary schools, I remember talking to friends back in the day and they said that in order to apply to culinary schools, they had to have some sort of prior experience in a restaurant. So you put that on your application and then the culinary school decides if you come on or not. Nowadays, they don't require that. They just want you to pay and go to culinary school. My best advice that I give anybody that wants to do this career, well, first of all, think about it. Because <laughs> it's not a normal thing. Let's start there. <laughs> it's not as cool as it seems. You know, uh, well, but if somebody does proceed, my best advice is like, go work at a restaurant, go knock on someone's door, go mm -hmm. work at a restaurant, be like, I have no experience, but I want to learn. Can I be here for three, four, five, six months? And then if you really like it and if you decide to go to culinary school, then make that investment because it's extremely expensive. It is very, it is. very expensive, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and, and after pandemic, and I'm not trying to crush anyone's dreams here. You know, people could reach out to me personally through my social media, my website, and I could advise them on them. But after pandemic, you know, what was during pandemic, what was really a mission on restaurant? It was nothing. It was a to-go box container that would do takeout. Like that really didn't really matter for that year, year and a half. You know, people, many Michelin restaurants started failing, started closing, unfortunately. 
and, and, and that I think changed the perspective of how our industry is going to go towards, you know, I'm not here to predict the future, but I think there has to be a change. So I strongly believe, especially after doing top chef, I was all about a mission in world mission in restaurants. This is the only thing when I got to meet 14 other people from around the country who were, if not just as talented, if not more talented, me have never worked at a Michelin restaurant, that opened my eyes to be like, you know what? All you need is a group of people or a restaurant that has standards and they want to do cool food. And I think after the pandemic, a lot of these cooks and chefs that used to work at Michelin restaurants, now they're leaving bigger cities. They're opening in small towns all around the country and are doing phenomenal food. And people are willing to pay People are willing to have that experience. Somebody from the Midwest that cannot go to New York and have a Michelin meal could have a chef who has been trained under Michelin come to the Midwest, open a restaurant, get stuff from the farmer down the block, get the dairy from, you know, another farmer that just milked it hours ago and make a beautiful dish. So when it comes to culinary school, I guess to answer that question, yes, I never went to culinary school. My library of books is humongous because I used to read, I used to blow through cookbooks in the subway on my days off. I used to go to Barnes and Nobles over on, on Union Square, right after the farmer's market. It was like a whole day for me. It was like on my day off, go to the farmer's market, pick up a few things, go to Barnes and Nobles throughout the day, order like three lattes, have a stack of books, have a notepad and some people may call it cheating. I was calling it, I was a sponge. and I That was your education. Yeah, yeah. That was my education. And then on top of that, I will bring those ideas to Cafe Bolu and I will do all these on dishes and test them out. So that was my culinary school. That's how I got through it. I, I wish I could have had the access of what an iPad was or, you know, look up information right then and there on the internet. Like I didn't have that growing up. You know, kids nowadays, Everything is at the finger snap. Everything is so available to them. But I'm finding that it's a generation that's a little bit more lazier and don't want to do the work, but want to get the reward. Well, you know, like I tell a lot of people with my stories, like you see the glory, but you don't know the story. Yeah, absolutely. There was some work, hard work before that. Yes. It really is. It really absolutely. is. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then, so you decide to leave uh, New York and go to Aspen in Colorado. So what was that about? Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, you reach this, these, I always tell people, once you reach the mountaintop, there is nowhere else to go but down. Like, like don't, you know, you could only hang out in the mountaintop so long because- So you went for a higher mountain. You went to- Well, it was another valley. Like I I felt like career-wise, you know, I reached every Michelin rated star that could be available worldwide. I did number one restaurant in the world. I was the first Costa Rican sous chef to be at a three-star Michelin number one restaurant in the world at that time that I knew of. I don't know any other Costa Ricans have done that. And I was like, okay, well, what else? The, the other project, once I got to this mountaintop, I was like, there has to be another valley that I need to look at to start walking towards that valley to reach another mountaintop. And that was like me telling myself, you need to do something on your own whether that's opening a restaurant or taking over a restaurant and seeing what it is to be now as the guy who decision affects 
everything, you know. And during that time, we were doing some pop-ups from 11 Madison Park. One of them was called the Summer House out in the Hamptons. And the other one, we decided to do it out in Aspen, Colorado called Winter House. And I was a, a sous chef of this traveling band, you know, and I really liked Aspen. I fell in love with like the weather, like 25 degrees here in Aspen, Colorado feels way different than 25 degrees in New York. It is extremely cold because of the humidity back in New York. Then I saw things like the whole ski culture. I've never been skiing before. So that was really, really awesome. Be able to see all of that and to go into a small town and try to make a difference. That was the other part that I was looking for. Very cool. When I look at the menu on 79, you know, eight, so which is the altitude, correct, of, of the restaurant. It was interesting yeah. because when I look like recently at the, the menu that is at the moment, it seems that you are, you are hitting, hitting like all the, the, f- hot trends in food currently. There's truffle, there's furikake, there's everything bagel, there's, you know, apple cider, sancho, yuzu. So I was like, wow, they like chili morita and so on that we see popping up around the country. <laughs> so I said, how, how do you stay current with all those, you know, food trends? For me, it's culinary. For me now, I don't try to... um put myself in a box. How I like to cook now is expression of how I'm feeling, how my environment around me has affected me and how that curiosity, how do I feed that curiosity? So when you, when you look at my story, I'm, you know, I'm a kid from Costa Rica, but I was raised in Costa Rica till I was eight. I was raised in the United States But I'm not American yet. I'm still a DACA recipient, you know, which leads me to being an immigrant. So I don't belong here. And then I was classically French trained, but I'm definitely not French. I love Southeast Asian cuisine. So what box do I fit in? There's there's no box. So that's how my cooking is. My cooking is, is an experience of all of my, you know, life put together with curiosity of what's next. And to me, it's like finding a cool ingredient, like like morita. I didn't know what a morita chile was until I went on Top Chef. And Maria from the show was using morita chiles all the time. And I'm like, what is this? And she had me trying. And then she's like, yeah, there's this other pepper called chiltepin and this. And I'm like, what the heck? This is like a whole new world for me. And this is, we're talking about Latin America. We're not even talking about like somewhere in India. We're talking about like our backyard pretty much. So that's the stuff that really excites me. Obviously, I like to cook classical uh, food and, and the classics will never go away. That's what makes the identity of cultures. But to be able to inquire these taste buds and just build more of your mental and flavor library through different techniques and ingredients is something that I like to do in my cooking is that element of surprise. So let's say I'm making a ceviche, you know, ceviche is like your fish, your citrus, your onions. So instead of using like a regular lime juice, I'm going to go ahead and use yuzu. It's still a citrus, 
but it's a citrus from Japan and it still gives it that acidity that you need, but it's a different flavor. And that's the aha moment or that's the element of surprise that I guess we'll have of having something familiar like a ceviche. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, well, what is this acidic thing? Now you have a story to tell. So I'm guessing, you know, that those ingredients from different parts of the world is something that inspire you. But, you know, what, what are like your sources of inspiration in general? To me, it's a little bit weird because I get inspired by colors. I get inspired by texture. Now that I'm out here in the nature, I could look at a mountain, at a face of a mountain, and all I see right now, especially now that the spring is coming, I see like still like snow, and then I could see like rocks, a certain color, and green popping out. And then next thing I think about is like, okay, what I see here is like a rocker, uh, oysters Rockefeller. You know, oysters Rockefeller come with they, they're baked and they look rough. And they have that, that panko breadcrumb that is like sometimes with parsley. So you like, so those little things, like, I'm like, I'm looking at a mountain face. I'm not even looking at anything special. So I get inspiration from nature. I get inspiration from how I'm feeling that day. If I think of a color that happens to me a lot, it's weird, but like I think of a color of yellow. And then I'm like, yellow, yellow, yellow. And I start thinking about yellow ingredients and what is a good contrast to yellow. Well, if I have an ingredient that's yellow, can I plate it in a black plate? So there's a contrast of color or focal points and that yellow pops out. And that's all I'm thinking about. But I need to serve it on something nice. So is it a dessert? Is it a a cheesecake that's cut like in a circle and then drizzled with like a mango glaze that's nice and vibrant yellow? And then I start composing a dish around that with textures, with flavors, things like that. I mean, I've seen like recently on your on your Instagram, there was a dish that really captured my my attention, my eyes. And because you're talking about color. So I don't remember the name of the dish, but there was something with like, uh, you know, salmon that you had, you know, on it. And it was like really yellow and orange. And there was some green. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the salmon crudo. Yeah. Yes. That. Yeah, the salmon crudo. Yeah. that That was... A combination of a piece of art and almost like some some craft, you know, from like colorful craft from a country, you know, like outside of the US. And I thought that that was really fantastic. So congratulations. Yeah, and a lot of two two things came from that dish, two inspirations. One of them is like, okay, how can I make this dish be like Latin American? And like I use like Huancaina, I use quinoa. I use some potato and ahi amarillo. So if you really think about it, that's like a Peruvian dish. But then to me, I hope I'm not offending anyone, but to me, salmon is such a common fish in here in the U.S. that it's become boring. So how can I take something that's like, to me, boring and elevate it? And that's the kind of inspiration that I find in cooking. So... At the beginning of um, the, our conversation, in fact, before we, you know, I press record, I was sharing with you that I've seen like a lot of other people on your uh, Instagram that you were saying that you were leaving, you know, your position at 7908 in uh, Aspen. So what is your next project? Well, for me, it has been, I feel like I was telling my staff this week, actually, as we were wrapping up, I was like, you know what, guys, like we left at the top. And like I was saying earlier, I can another mountain. Yeah. 
There's nowhere else to go but down. And we reached the top. You know, we built a kitchen culture that we had people from around the world, you know, emailing me and saying, can I go and work for you? I like what you're doing there. We change a lot of things in town, how the culture is like in the culinary world. We met some amazing people. So that was it like that. We, we can't push any more than that. You know, we were creative. We were innovative. That's the capacity of that. Now, I think for the first time in my life, I am happy to say and feel good about saying, you know what? I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to take some time off just to see what my next move is. I'm going to be doing a little bit of traveling. I'm going to get, you know, influenced by traveling and doing all these other things. I'm going to start reaching out to people who I didn't reach out to just because I was so busy with the restaurant and doing things. Start building those human connections back again. Working on your book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So my, my writer is happy about that because I'm actually going to give him time to, <laughs> to write this book. So he's really happy about that. But down the line, I want to say in the next two to four months, I'm working on a project here in Boulder, Colorado, where I'm trying to build a kitchen in which we could offer private dining experiences, kind of like a chef's tasting that would change every week. I'm thinking about bringing in some of my celebrity chef friends. I'm thinking about tapping into the local culinary schools and, and getting kids involved in actual like hands-on training, working with local farmers once like the summer comes around and just doing like a little thinking lab and be able to experiment with food. A lot of my cooks, a lot of my team from Aspen is actually moving out here and we're doing this project together. So we're right now, I'm talking to a developer and kind of getting my ideas on paper. And I think it should be coming to fruition at the end of the summer. At the end of the summer. Okay. So keep my finger crossed. Uh, very cool. Very great. So, Chef, thank you. You spent a lot of time with me, but I just want to finish our conversation with a series of rapid-fire questions, if it's okay with you. So, you and I are going on a tasting tour in Aspen. Where are, like, the five spots that you are going to take me to? One of my favorite restaurants is called Plato's. P-L-A-T-O-S. Chef Rachel is an extremely talented chef. I will go to Plato's in a for lunch or around six o'clock in the afternoon on a nice summer day. It has the most beautiful, breathtaking views of Aspen. Now, second will be Home Team Barbecue. It's one of the only two barbecue places we have in Aspen. And to me, I'm a chicken wing type of guy. Their chicken wings are like the best in Aspen, in my opinion. Third will be a restaurant called Betula. Betula is uh, the chef Laurent. He used to work for Daniel Boulou and he's doing pan-American and French cuisine. The, the place is beautiful. The food is really, really good. And uh, they're doing an amazing job over in Betula. That's three. Four, if you're skiing and you want a good bite with phenomenal views, go to the top of the mountain on Aspen Mountain, Ajax. So you take the gondola and you go all the way on top. I'm hoping it's a beautiful, bright, sunny day. 
and you're sitting at this mountaintop and this restaurant is on this mountaintop and the views, you look at like the Rocky Mountains as far as the eye can see. And the last one will have to be a place called Pine Creek Cookhouse. So Pine Creek Cookhouse, you have to make a reservation. And I think the best time to go is in the winter because there's two ways to get there. You take a road about 20 minutes outside of Aspen, kind of winding through the mountains, going up elevation. You park your car in Ashcroft Ghost Town. It's a ghost town. Literally, it's a ghost town. They have like little, it's like a little museum of like how back in the day this town survived, but now it's a ghost town. So you park you there, you park your car there. You can't go any further up to a certain point because it's just full of snow. The only two ways to get there is either through a horse carriage that you pre-book or you go rent skinning. So you take skis and you walk. Yeah. Wow. You, you walk <laughs> or you, cool. you, uh, you snowshoe to the restaurant. So that's okay. part of the experience. What's your favorite, favorite guilty pleasure food? Haagen-Dazs strawberry ice cream. Every time I get really? a pint, I always tell myself, okay, you're going to eat a few spoonfuls. Next thing I know, <laughs> 10 minutes later, the whole pint is gone. You hit the, you hit the bottom of the pot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are like the, the three cookbooks that inspire you the most in your career? Life on the Line. Life on the Line is the Grand Ackett story. His determination to be the best and fighting you know, almost like supernatural diseases and, and be still be there. That is something really, really inspiring. Sapia by Martin Ben of Australia. Sapia, the, the way that he was doing his plating, his cuisine was something phenomenal. And then the third one will have to be Relay by Christian Puglisi. It's almost like a dictionary of vegetables and Nordic cuisine that pair with each other. The, the way that that book was written and thought out, it was a really, really genius idea. My last question, what is your biggest pet peeve in the kitchen? My biggest pet peeve is when people leave equipment, whether it's a spoon, a piece of tape, or their knife on my cutting board. <laughs> okay. Chef, thank you so much again. Sure. I mean, I want to thank you for taking the time and allowing me to, to tell my story and share my thoughts. Really, really appreciate this. Thank you for listening today. You can find the show notes of this episode on the website flavorsunknown.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a colleagues or a friend as I always welcome new people to the show. Don't forget to leave a review wherever you listened to this podcast. Next week, my guest will be Chef Andy Dubrava from Rustic Canyon, one of Chef Jeremy Fox's restaurant in Los Angeles. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.